You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining us, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, we got uh, bad news this week. Do you think we ought to get that out of the way right off the top or save it till later? No, hit him with it. No co-main event podcast next week. Boom. Yeah, that is the... uh, the bad news. Uh, we're going to go on a wilderness retreat. Yeah, a little team building exercise. Get out there, do a ropes course, maybe some trust falls. Yeah. Just see what happens. Just a couple of guys alone in the wilderness. Yeah, I don't know if people are familiar with the TV show uh, Naked and Afraid, uh, I believe is that is the name of it. Right, and that is also the subtitle of almost every episode of this show. Yeah, uh, and I, you know, as many times as like... The, the guide we've arranged to take us deep, deep into the wilderness tells us that we don't have to be naked. I don't believe it. So I think that we just, you know, we show up and we do, we do us and, uh, we're going to emerge stronger from this experience. Yeah, man. You know, so if all things go right and Lord willing, we'll be back the following week. What is that? August 11th? Yeah. Actually, Chad's going to South Carolina. That's yeah, why. That's I, what's happening. I have to go on a trip. So, I couldn't uh, keep up the charade. So that that's that's where we're at. If the good news, if there is any, is that there's no UFC event for the next couple of weeks. So we will be back that Monday, uh, just prior to that Ryan Bader Oven St. Pru fight night that everyone's expecting to just rip the tops of our heads yeah. clean off. Dream fight finally coming together there. The one we've all been waiting for for years. Should we do this though? Three rounds as usual this week. I guess we should. In the uh, co-main event podcast. In round number one, Daniel Cormier is the kind of guy who will earnestly get on Twitter and ask his followers for tips on how to play this video game he's trying to figure out. Also, he'll send you a direct message about how he's going to fuck you up, and I can't decide which one I like more. In round number two, with Anthony Johnson Ascendant, the UFC light heavyweight division is rolling, so why can't I shake the feeling that somebody is about to get totally screwed? And in round number three, would it really surprise anybody if we found out that on Sunday morning, Robbie Lawler and Matt Brown met in the parking lot of a Chili's somewhere outside Reno and fought five more rounds just because they didn't have anything better to do? All that plus Master Tweet Theater, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Tyler Pebley. He writes, STOCKTON MOTHERFUCKERS! All caps and three exclamation points. Somebody had to do it. So I assume that this is Dana White secretly tweeting us from his Tyler Pebley email account. Yeah, I mean, he'll do that from time to time. His birthday today, you know. Tyler Pebley? Dana White. Same guy. Yeah, UFC president. All right. Tyler Pebley continues, Nick Diaz is finally getting paid. Does any other fight but Anderson Silva make sense at this point? What would a win for Nick Diaz and a loss for Anderson Silva do for their respective careers and vice versa? This shit needs discussing. It does need discussing. It's interesting, though, to couch the question, does any other fight but Anderson Silva make sense at this point? Since it's a fight that makes almost no sense unless you're into A, awesome stuff, or B, things that people are going to get paid a shitload of money to do. But it makes so little sense that it makes sense, if, if, if that makes sense. So like, Superman has flown around the world backwards, reverse time, 
and suddenly everything makes sense. Well, I think that it's, it's so of, wrong, it's right. Like, I, I don't know. I'm not terribly interested in seeing Nick Diaz right now try to jump back in the welterweight picture and work his way back to a title. It would seem like probably not worth the money they're going to have to pay him uh, to have him just fight some welterweight contender right now. Uh, you need a, a pretty big fight for him, uh, especially assuming that they are paying him the kind of money that he wants. Uh, so you, you need a huge fight. Also, uh, Anderson Silva says he's going to come back, and it also doesn't seem like totally pressing to see him drop right back into the, the middleweight mixer. Why not? Why not have these guys go at it? I mean, man, you'll have motherfuckers calling in sick to their own weddings to watch this one. I don't care if it doesn't make any sense. I don't care if it doesn't have a lot of repercussions immediately for any one division. This is the kind of thing that you rearrange your life to see. Yeah, it is unbelievably awesome if it actually goes off as as it's rumored to. And it's sort of, you just mentioned it's sort of like the perfect storm of weird situations that would make this fight actually uh, make sense for everybody involved. Um, my, one of my questions is, and, and, and Tyler Pebley, a.k.a. Dana White, asks the question in his question, uh, if Nick Diaz wins, that seems to open up a ton of doors and possibilities for him because I assume you would have to have this fight at 185 because old man Anderson Silva ain't coming down to 170 anymore Not for this. like he used to do down at the Rumble on the Rock days. Uh, so I think you'd have to have this fight at 185, and if Nick Diaz were to win it, well, you could do almost anything at that point, couldn't you? You, you could. could thrust him straight into your middleweight division and say, hey, the guy just beat Anderson Silva. Let's see what he can do here. Do you see him beating Anderson Silva? That's the next question. No. Uh, the, I, we've discussed this privately uh, in the past. I think that the only way he beats Anderson Silva is that if Anderson Silva comes back from this horrific injury that he's suffered at, what, he's 40 years old now, uh, and it just turns out he's completely done if he has gotten old in one night, as they say. Uh, I think that's the only way that Nick Diaz would beat him. Uh, but I don't, I, you know, frankly, I just don't see that happening. Nick Diaz is a guy who obviously has a, a, a very offensive style and, and sets a pace that a lot of people have a hard time keeping up. But he's also a guy who is not afraid to get punched right in your face. Nope. And every time we've seen Anderson Silva fight against a guy who comes in with that particular style, that guy gets knocked out. Like, hilariously. Yeah, but, I mean, that's part of the appeal to me is that you have a guy like Nick Diaz who's going to, you know, throw out the Stockton Hay Buddies and not give a single goddamn flying fuck. Going to walk straight forward, uh, chatting Anderson Silva up as he's getting his head knocked around. And we're just going to see if he can take that well enough to finally get his offense going or if he's just going to take it long enough to finally, you know, get really beat up and knocked out, which is not something you really see happen to him very often. So... I think that either way, it's a super interesting fight just because when you play it out in your, your mind brain, you do the old, run the old simulator on that one, it's really tough to see exactly how it's going to go. And even when you think you know how it's going to go, you still are, it's one of those where you're almost hoping that you're wrong. Second question this week comes from Dan Cawthorn. He writes, has Dennis Bermudez improved so much that he can handle a fighter like Clay Guida with ease? Or has Clay Guida's style become so predictable that a lower tier fighter such as Bermudez is able to beat him? I'm inclined to say this fight says better things about Dennis Bermudez than it says poor things about Clay Guida. Yeah, I don't know where you get off calling Dennis Bermudez a lower tier fighter. At this point, I don't think that that's a viable opinion. This guy looks better every time we see him. Uh, He's on what, like a, like a seven fight win? Yeah, I believe he has one more win than uh, than Cub Swanson, uh, and uh, he just came out and blew Clay Guida's doors off, and frankly, 
It's just an yet another indicator of how awesome and interesting this featherweight division is getting right before our very eyes. Yeah, and you look at the one loss that uh, Dennis Bermudez has in the UFC. It was in that Ultimate Fighter finale where he was kicking Diego Brandao's ass and then just got, got like armbarred, like a Hail Mary armbar. Uh, when Brandao was hurt and Bermudez got a little too aggressive for his own good. So he keeps developing, uh, keeps improving. He looked great against Clay Guida. I mean, I do think that you can say that there's a little element of both here where Dennis Bermudez looked good uh, and Clay Guida is starting to look like maybe it's not quite there for him anymore. Like, you know, the best days might have gone by for Clay Guida. I mean, he's still a tough dude. He can still, his cardio and his just his motor is still a problem for some people. But it's clear that he's not going to be that elite guy anymore. And a lot more people are starting to figure that out. I mean, I think that you look at his career, he's still overachieved probably for what his athletic potential is. Uh, but... I think that this is the kind of fight that shows that uh, it might be a downward trending line for Clay Guida from here on out. Yeah, and you know, the featherweight division right now has a bunch of dudes that I would not argue with watching them fight almost anyone. Uh, with your Chad Mendezes, your Frankie Edgars, your, your Cub Swansons, you know, uh, I guess you got to put Dennis Bermudez on that list, Conor McGregor, and then you still got wild cards like Jeremy Stevens hanging around out there who's not going to be the champion, but at the same time, uh, you want to see a fun fight where two guys are just going to try to knock each other's faces off. Like, he'll do that for you. He will, and I do want to see that. Well, I know you do. Everyone does. Next question this week comes to us from Jimmy Haley. So hopefully after this weekend of MMA, we've seen the last of two longtime fighters, Roger Nog and the poet Philip Aroni. One was a great fighter back in the Pride days, and the other was really fun for Master Tweet Theater. Discuss. Ooh, ooh, ouch. Yeah, that's kind of a that's kind of a mean thing to say about the poet Philip Baroni. It did though, I mean, first of all, did you watch uh, the poet's fight with Carl Parisian and Bellator? Unfortunately, Bellator? yes, I did. Yeah. Um, you know what's bad about that if you're Philip Baroni? Uh, not just that you got TKO'd in, in like what, two minutes and 30 seconds or four yeah, minutes, something, something like, like that. that. Uh, but that you're such an open book as we've explored at length in Master Tweet Theater that you spent like the previous two months of the fight essentially talking about it. And like then the previous three weeks before the fight talking about how ornery you were and how you were ready for your comeback and how you were about to unleash the new Phil Baroni on the world. And you'd gone back to this gym where you felt at home and everything was really clicking for you. And then you just get obliterated by, by Carl Parisian. Well, I mean, I don't know. It, it seems like uh, watching that fight, I started to wonder if Phil Baroni is suffering from the thing where for a while he maybe relied on – being a tough guy who could take a punch and his chin was pretty solid and that with age and wear and tear, that's that gift is starting to leave him because it didn't seem like he got nailed particularly hard at first by Carl Parisian uh, and was on Queer Street there. Yeah, that's uh, what I'm saying. You spend like three months talking about how ready you are and then that happens. Well, you would be better off not having a social media presence at that point. No, there's no way. Phil Brony or the world would be better off <laughs> if he didn't have a social media presence. And then, you know, after he loses the fight, he's going to retweet a bunch of like inspirational tweets uh, that obviously pertain to how he's feeling. Uh, but also they're going to have a pool party at his house, regardless <laughs> of the weather. Nice. That seemed to indicate. Well, I feel doesn't he live in Vegas, uh, Vegas in July. I feel like you can probably go ahead and book that pool party. Uh, but I, this was one of those where you saw the way he lost and you started to think, OK, it's probably not going to get a whole lot better for uh, the poet Philip Brony from here on out. Also, though, I mean, Carl Parisian is probably better than we give him credit for. Uh, so it's not like it's a super embarrassing loss to some nobody. But I don't know. I mean, 
Do, are we ready to say, like this question asker does about both Roger Nog and the poet Philip Baroni, like that this has got to be it? Because for one thing, what do you want them to go do now? Uh, and for another, can you blame them if they might feel like, okay, this is just a, a bad a bad skid, but I need to just pick myself up and pull my stuff, stuff back together and I'll be right back in there? Well, if they do feel that way, it wouldn't necessarily differentiate them from almost any other aging fighter in the world. Well, no, you look at a guy like Kyle Kingsbury, right, who lost that fight to Patrick Cummins. Uh, he came out of his retirement to fight Patrick Cummins, got just fucking dominated, uh, and then afterwards it's like, yeah, you know what, I shouldn't be doing this. Like, Yeah, uh, but I mean, I think that there's pr- a pretty obvious divide there between a guy like Phil Baroni and a guy like Kyle Kingsbury that I think you can see if you only read Kyle Kingsbury's farewell tweet where he's like, I learned more about myself through this journey than, than anything else I've ever done. It was awesome. Uh, and now I have to step away. And Philip Baroni's tweet is about how he's going to have a pool party at his house, regardless of the weather. So you're saying that maybe Kyle Kingsbury does not uh, believe strongly enough that he's the best ever. That's that, where, that's what his downfall that could be. is. Maybe that was his downfall all along. And what I, do- you know, I assume we will talk more about Roger Nog's, uh, terrible knockout at the hands of Anthony Johnson in, in round two this week. Uh, but you do get the impression uh, about both these guys that would probably be in their best interests uh, not to fight again. And you would hope that maybe a guy like Mark Coleman can explain that to, to Phil Baroni, maybe. Again, they, they were running around together this week and and uh, God, wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall for that conversation? The one where, where the hammer sits Phil Baroni down and tries to tell him that it's over, brother? Oh God! I mean, I don't know that I would want to be a fly on the wall, oh, but it yeah. hap- if it happened in the at the next booth over at a Sherry's restaurant that I was at, I would probably listen. I would probably eavesdrop. What would be your ballpark number for how many times during that conversation Mark Coleman uh, would refer to other fighters as cats? Like <laughs> these young cats coming up are just too tough, or you can't compete with these cats if you're not all the way in it. That kind of a thing. Yeah, us old cats need to move on and do something else. I mean, I'm saying if the conversation takes roughly 15 minutes, as I assume that it would coleman uses the word cats no less than 27 times see i was gonna go over under like a baker's dozen but i see you've gone way over way over that i'm assuming this would be a conversation over cocktails yeah that's that's probably true probably a lot of storytelling going on there yeah we had some days brother much like jesus christ mark coleman uh will prefers to communicate via allegory uh storytelling Next question this week comes to us from Mike Morgan. He writes, Josh Thompson lost via split decision to Bobby Green in San Jose on Saturday night. The Punk is now 1-3 and three in his last four fights. However, all three of those losses to Green, Henderson, and Melendez were all via split decision and could have gone either way. Thompson has proven that he can hang with the top of the division, but similar to Frankie Edgar or Benson Henderson, he always seems to find himself in incredibly close fights at 35 years old. Has Thompson missed his chance at UFC gold, or does he still have a title run left in him this puts josh thompson in kind of a tough spot i think because it it's different it's way different if you're benson henderson and you win a bunch of fights that you very well could have lost than if you are josh thompson and you lose a bunch of fights that you very well could have won uh because while you know one might bring you more public scrutiny if you're benson henderson like if you're a guy like Josh Thompson, you can only be like, oh, man, I totally should have won that. I got fucked by the judges again. so many times. Fucked by the judges again. What are the odds? Before it just sort of starts to ring hollow, even though I think it's a valid point. And I thought that uh, he was going to get the nod against Bobby Green Did this you? weekend. I thought that it was close enough down the stretch that uh, 
that he was going to take it, even though the the uh, I th- I just thought that the fight was a lot closer than we were led to believe by the broadcast team. I will agree with you there. It was closer. Uh, the The broadcast made it seem like Bobby Green was just running away with it, and I don't think that that was the case. I think it was closer than that. But I also think that. Uh, as we've seen in a lot of these situations, when you've got a close fight where it seems like each round could kind of go either way, uh, and there's not like, you know, some late takedown or something that really seals it, or like a one big, like, damaging punching barrage, things that make up a huge difference are something like if one guy's standing in the center of the cage following the other guy around while the other guy is on the perimeter, uh, circling, trying to kind of hunt and peck and, and, and get away. The judges usually tend to favor the guy, you know, octagon control, basically. Uh, which seems bullshit in a lot of instances, but the judges usually favor the guy who is standing there in the middle uh, trying to go get the other guy. And Josh Thompson's problem, I think, in that is that he just didn't do enough, like, and he didn't land enough, uh, and so it seemed like Bobby Green is just, like, verbally haranguing him, for one thing, while following him all over the place uh, and kind of bringing the fight to him, and that's not a good look. I guess it's, as has been said before, uh, it's it's hard to win a fight going backwards, and I think that that was kind of his problem there. Uh, and it seemed like a really different kind of guy than the guy who went out there and blasted Nate Diaz upside his damn head. Yeah, uh, and the, the mid-fight speechifying was was the kind of thing that when you watch it go down, you you have this sinking feeling where you're like, you know what, I hope this isn't affecting the judges, but it seems like the kind of thing that probably will. Yeah, especially if you're going to narrate for the judges which punches landed, and according to Bobby Green, None of them. Yeah, he won uh, that fight by first round stoppage, according to his own <laughs> his own narration of it. So Josh Thompson now is thirty five years old. Is a guy who uh, earlier in his career missed a ton of time with injuries. Kind of had a a, a back and forth trilogy with Gilbert Melendez and Strike Force. Had the Strike Force title, but is is you know not the guy who personifies that title. Certainly, that's Gilbert Melendez. Came into the UFC, uh, you know, asserted himself in a way that we probably didn't think that he could. But at the same time, after he lost his last fight by sort of controversial decision was already hinting at retirement. Um, so he is in kind of a tough spot now as a man of a certain age who has already uh, tipped his hand a little bit that he doesn't think he's going to be in this for the long haul anymore. I don't know what you do with the guy. Uh, uh, I think he's a fun fighter to watch and in a lot of ways like Matt Brown, which I assume we'll talk about later in the show, is a guy that uh, you probably feel better if you just watch him fight and don't get too deep into what's going on in in his mind brain. <laughs> yes, that's true. Uh, but at the same time, uh, a guy who gave a lot to the sport and a guy that I think uh, fight fans will think fondly of when he goes, I just don't know at this point what's really left for him uh, in that division. Yeah, and it's a shame too because like as Mike Morgan points out here, I mean, Benson Henderson and Gilbert Melendez, two of the best lightweights out there. I think Josh Thompson could fight each of those guys five more times and you'd have you know each one of them be close fights he probably loses the majority of them via like split decision though and and that's just kind of a it seems like either a a defect of his style or something that's happening to him now with 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 age where where before where if it used to be a little just good enough it's not quite anymore so i don't know man i mean I, i wouldn't blame him for not wanting to go out on a fight like this uh but i also wouldn't blame the ufc if they're starting to take a hard look at it and say I don't know where Josh Thompson fits in a very crowded and very talented division right now. Let's do one more from Dan O. He writes, hey, remember a while ago when I sent a listener mail question saying that some guys are maybe, just maybe, exaggerating the effects of groin shots so they can catch a breather? I'm sure you guys thought I was an asshole for saying that. Not saying I'm not, but now thanks to Matt Brown, I have indisputable proof. In case you haven't guessed, I don't have a question. I just wanted to gloat. Thanks, Matt Brown. 
Awesome question, Dano. Awesome Not question, question, Dan. Question, non-question. Uh, but, you know, I think we can talk about this for a minute because we've seen two really high-profile instances in the last couple of weeks, one involving Jim Miller and Donald Cerrone and one involving Matt Brown and uh, uh, Robbie Lawler where the, there were some borderline low blows that may have been miscalled by the referee, although I know that uh, in the wake of uh, this Matt Brown, John McCarthy thing, both those guys have come out and, and kind of said that they that it was a legitimate low blow. All right, and I'm not going to say that it, that they're completely bullshitting, but they both have a vested interest in saying that because Matt Brown doesn't want to be Naturally. Uh, made out to be a faker, and Big John McCarthy doesn't want to be made out to be somebody who screwed up the fight by like calling a, a stoppage or calling a halt there when he shouldn't have. Uh, but you look at the replay on that one, and it's tough to really see that as a low blow. I mean, maybe right. his Unless shin... Unless he's riding pretty high. You yeah. know what I'm saying? <laughs> riding you all, the way, I'm saying? all the way up in his belly button. Uh, in which case, hey, good for him. But uh, it seemed like one of those where, like, okay, maybe his shin kind of grazes his cup on the way up to kicking him right in the gut. But I feel like that's one where... You have a cup there for a reason, like it should be able to kind of deflect some of that. But I also feel like when Matt Brown came out and was like, hey, I would never do something like that. I believe that. I, I, I do believe that he would not, he's not the kind of guy who, even if we do regard it as like a little bit of veteran gamesmanship to take a hard shot, uh, borderline right there on the, on the belt and play it up to get yourself a little breather. Right. Like I, I think that that's kind of smart in some instances, but I also believe that for all his qualities, Matt Brown is not that type of smart. I don't think that he was intentionally faking that. I agree with you. Uh, speaking of gamesmanship, though, and considering what I think we can both agree is the totally bullshit way that fouls and low blows are officiated a lot in mixed martial arts, where it seems like if you get kicked in the nuts, it's simply a lose-lose proposition for you. Uh, your opponent is probably not going to get punished. Uh, the crowd is going to boo you, which is going to make you sort of look like a pussy if you take any time to, uh, to try to recuperate. Uh, you invariably go back in the fight at a disadvantage. Is there anything wrong with say, you know, playing the other side of the coin and saying, "Hey, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to get myself out of a bad situation here." Sounds like you're advocating for just kind of a slightly different breed of Dundaso, really. That That's what it sounds like. I wouldn't put it past me. I wouldn't seems... put it past you either. No, I mean there's there's something to be said for that. Like I think that 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 might be smart if you can pull it off. I mean, you're in there. You 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 got to play for keeps in there. You use everything you got. Like like Flashman says, when the game is going against you, stay calm and cheat. Uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily blame somebody for trying to, to play that up there. Uh, at the same time, it does seem like bullshit where if there's a, a shot right in that region and you kind of double over and grab your cup, I mean, 80% chance you, you get the referee in there unless he had a, a super clear view of it. I mean, it's a tough one. It's a tough one to call. But most of the time, if you play it off like you just got kicked in the groin and it all happens so fast and the referee might be not in, in the best position to see it, he's going to kind of take your word for it. Yeah, at the same time, though, kind of a risk because you could always wind up on the Matt Hughes end of the Matt Hughes-Frank Trigg rematch. And Matt Hughes won that motherfucker. He did come back to win it, but there was a reason why it's considered one of the greatest fights in UFC history miraculous that he was able to do that well that's going to do it for this week's listener mail if you have a question comment or concern that you want to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks you know how to get a hold of us you can go to our website comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast that'll get you in touch with us as for right now though we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one
All right, Ben. Well, as we noted in last week's Breakfast of Champions email, Alexander Gustafson has blown out his meniscus and is out of his scheduled fight with John Jones in September, which is a bummer for him, but is kind of awesome for everyone else because the UFC moved quickly to put Daniel Cormier into this fight against John Jones, which was kind of the fight that most of us were waiting to see anyway. So I guess my opening question to you is are we assholes well yeah we can be assholes but we can still be delighted we can just be some delighted assholes sitting over here i mean i'm not saying like that i was sitting around here going man i hope something happens to alexander gustafson hope he he'll be gets hit by a taxi cab or something uh i mean obviously we we want the best for that guy he seems like a nice dude a good fighter i, I think that uh he's obviously going to end up probably fighting for the title again at some point in his future. Maybe that's why I don't feel so bad about it, though, is because I feel like, okay, we saw Jones Gustafson. We enjoyed the hell out of it. We're probably going to see it again one way or another, uh, either for the title or not. Uh, and so I don't feel like I necessarily have to see that one right now if, A, the dude is hurt and the alternative is Daniel Cormier can step up and go. Man, why the hell not? That's an awesome fight. Right. And the other thing that I think we should mention is that Daniel Cormier is 35 years old. Alexander Gustafson's still in his 20s. So, like, if you're going to get a Daniel Cormier, John Jones fight, you would very much like to get it while Daniel Cormier is still on his upswing, both uh, athletically and in terms of his romp through the UFC light heavyweight division. So I'm, I'm pleased that it's going to happen right now. These guys are uh, uh, like in the first 24 or 48 hours since the fight got announced. The, those dudes already uh, inspired more hype and trash talk for their fight than Jones and Gustafson had done, you know, for their rematch during the previous several months when we knew it was going to happen. Uh, so clearly it's going to have that sort of uh, fun slash annoying uh, extra bit of atmosphere that John Jones and Daniel Cormier allegedly don't like each other stemming from an incident where they nearly fought uh, outside the world MMA awards in 2011. Speaking of which, have any good ever come of the World MMA Awards? No, it just Dudes seems... be going there to get popped for their TRT. Jones and Cormier almost brawling outside the hotel or whatever. It's like the it's like the BET Awards, the Source Awards or whatever. But there is an open bar. Well, that is kind of awesome. Yeah. And I would assume leads to much of the trouble. Yes, it does. That happens later on. Yeah. Well, you know, I think this is one where, like... Even when uh, Daniel Cormier is talking about this beef, he comes off as a super reasonable dude. Yeah. And the thing he said that where it felt like it really rang true for me was where he was saying, you know, I respect John Jones and what he's done and, and a lot of the ways about how he carries himself. But we just don't click, man. Like, the, And, you know, I think everybody can relate to that where you always know some people where you're like, I can't say like objectively that this is a bad person and yet we don't like each other. And that's just how it is. Uh, and – we this happens to be one of those few sports where the dudes who just don't click and don't like each other get to beat the shit out of each other for our entertainment. I mean, I, I think that that's uh, a great way of putting it and like a non like manufactured way that makes me believe like, OK, this is legitimate. This is like a, a, a human conflict kind of thing that happens. Uh, and it's probably going to be an awesome fight just athletically. Yeah, they seem to legitimately dislike each other, which is always good when we can get that in this sport. Uh, but we, you know, we, let's talk about this trash talk angle for just a second. We talked about this the other night, you and I, uh, just that, uh, the, 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 these guys have already 
uh, sort of started bickering like grade school kids on the social media. Uh, and it kind of seems like John Jones, uh, as Daniel Cormier indicated in his first tweet, is going to be just a little bit more of a trash talk ninja than Daniel Cormier is. You know, clearly John Jones kind of has this down at this point. He's, he's now deleting his, his tweets and his Instagram videos as sort of like part of his thing. That's part of his gimmick. It's part of what he does now to try to, uh, create headlines and cause this stuff to blow up even bigger than it would have before. And Daniel Cormier, is just kind of so nice and earnest, uh, like I said in the intro, that uh, he it just he's gonna do it. He's gonna trash talk with John Jones, but it also kind of seems like uh, this isn't his first language. No, right? like this isn't how he would prefer to do it. There's not a lot of trickery to his trash talk. Not a, not a whole lot of nuance. It's just I'm gonna fuck you up, or hey, you want me to shut up? Make me shut up. I mean, everything Daniel Cormier learned about trash talk. Uh, everything he needed to know, he learned in the seventh grade. You know, yeah. uh, I'm gonna say though, it was awesome when Daniel Cormier replied to John Jones's "Come to Daddy" direct message on on social media with with a, a message that just said, "I'm gonna fuck you up." I thought that was awesome, and especially an awesome thing to send the uh, the best fighter in the world, yes. the best pound for pound fighter in the world. Certainly makes you seem like a confident dude who might be able to go out and do what he says he's gonna do. Uh, a little bit off color, maybe, for John Jones to say, to make all of these repeated daddy references to, to, to Daniel Cormier since Daniel Cormier's father legitimately was murdered in the, in the past. That's true. Also, Daniel Cormier is like almost 10 years older than John Jones. So, right. is that too? Um, you know, let's talk though for a minute about stylistically how we actually see this fight playing out. Because one thing that concerns me, uh, you know, we've already talked about how John Jones has that reach advantage over a lot of guys. He'll certainly have it a uh, big time over Daniel Cormier, uh, who will have to try and find a way to get in there on it. And I still don't know about Daniel Cormier's knee. When a guy starts talking about how, like, oh, I was going to have knee surgery, and then I was thinking, maybe I don't, and then I got this huge opportunity dropped in my lap, and I was like, oh, no, hey, my knee's fine. It's totally fine, guys. That always makes me a little concerned. Yeah, Daniel Cormier's knee is certainly the elephant in the room here. Last we heard, like you said, he had at least two partially torn ligaments in his knee. I believe his LCL and ACL that he was going to have surgery on. Uh, he wrestled that, uh, exhibition wrestling match during the UFC Fan Expo, I think right before UFC 175. Uh, he won that. It was against a guy who was his former teammate in college, uh, and, and, you know, the last we heard, he was going to have knee surgery right after that. And then, uh, with the timeline becomes unclear at that point. He either postponed his knee surgery and then got this fight or postponed his knee surgery because he got this fight, which I agree with you is a little bit troubling because as good as Daniel Cormier has been, uh, especially since coming down to light heavyweight, you don't like to think that he's going to go out there and try to fight John Jones on one leg because that won't work. No, that won't be a good idea for anybody. But I, I mean, it is, there's so many different elements of this fight that are really interesting. I mean, you got Daniel Cormier's quickness, uh, and his power makes you think that we're going to get to see uh, an element of John Jones's game that we haven't seen before. In the last John Jones's last title defense, uh, it seemed like he was perfectly willing to get punched in the face, uh, if that's what it took. Uh, maybe a little too willing. Uh, and it kind of makes you wonder how that'll play out against the guy who's coming down from heavyweight and was, you know, cold clocking some, some real heavyweights. Uh, and also a guy with, uh, some real wrestling skills who can test you in that department, uh, in a way that we haven't seen John Jones really deal with too much. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think that in pre, in his last couple of fights, John Jones hasn't been as difficult to get to 
as I think we kind of want to give him credit for and maybe uh, that how he seemed in previous uh, uh, outings. I don't well, know if that's like just he... because he had a different style in these last two fights, but I see a lot of people saying, like, Daniel Cormier is too short, he'll never get past the reach, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm just saying, Dan, uh, John, John Jones has been a little bit easier to get to in his last couple fights than, than we've given him credit for. But don't you think that that's part because he seems to be doing this thing where – like he wants to go to the other guy's strengths, yeah. as if to kind of prove a yeah. point. Like he's he's not. It's not that he's hard to get, not hard to get to because uh, you know he's not as good as we thought, but because he's making it easier for these guys to get to him uh, in order to say, hey, where do you want this? Okay, let's go there and do it, kind of Anderson Silva style. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think that would be inadvisable to do, do against Daniel Cormier if he has two working legs, uh, because we have already seen him scoop up Josh Barnett and WWF style body slam him. And if you can do that to a guy who weighs as much as Josh. Barnett, you can probably do it to John Jones. Obviously, there's going to be, uh, you know, a lot of other factors at play here, and and it seems like you would be kind of foolish to pick against John Jones in the light heavyweight division right now. But if there was going to be one fight in his career where you considered it, this might be it. It might be. It might be. Then, I mean, I think that this uh, that's why it's a really interesting matchup for for all those reasons, and just it feels like that kind of fight where. Uh, these only come along every once in a while where all those things match up. It seems like there's, you don't have to plug any artificial hype. You don't need to get a bunch of Joe Rogan sound bites, uh, to, to pump it up. You, it's right there already. And then it seems like it's going to be right there physically once they actually get in the cage. Yeah, it's, I think it's something that's worth being real excited for. Uh, and you know, if Daniel Cormier's knee is hurt as bad as, as, you know, we thought it was. It seems like it would be hard for him to even get through a fight camp. Obviously, he says it's going to be fine. We fully expect him to make it to the cage. We fully expect that knee to then get tested by John Jones, elliptical kicking him in it approximately 1,000 times, which I saw Daniel Cormier say today he was totally fine with and would feel a little bit disappointed as a competitor of John Jones didn't try to do that to him. Uh, so assuming that Daniel Cormier comes into this fight healthy, uh, it's hard for me to think of a better matchup or or a more intriguing matchup, uh, not just in this weight class, but maybe in this sport that we've seen um, recently. Yeah. It's just crazy. Let's talk really briefly about the timing of this, not to get into too much conspiracy shit, but obviously this fight was announced the same day that Vitor Belfort and Chael Sonnen appeared in front of the Nevada State Athletic Commission. Uh, Surely you're not suggesting that uh, the UFC timed this announcement to take attention away from some bad publicity there. All I'm saying, Ben, is that this fight was announced later that afternoon, and as soon as it was announced, it seemed like Daniel Cormier already had the T-shirts printed up. Maybe he had that box of t-shirts just sitting in his bedroom just waiting for this to happen, but if you're, if you're looking to make a conspiracy, there's, you know, somebody on the grassy knoll over there wearing one of these break bones t-shirts. Okay, I see what you're saying. Um, before we end this one, I want to quickly say, I don't know if you've taken a look at John Jones's, uh, Wikipedia profile photo, uh, since we've been known to discuss those in the past, but I'm looking at it right now. And it kind of seems like John Jones is on his way in to, uh, like one of those, uh, congressional hearings in The Godfather, yeah. uh, where he's going to be asked about his connections to, uh, Vito Corleone. Uh, it's also kind of awesome. It is. Have you seen, I think the, uh, UFC.com put a picture of John Jones on Twitter today. I don't know if it was, uh, a re- recent photo or not, but, he appears to be rocking an unbelievably amazing beard, which I know that he's known to do. But my God, it just makes him look a thousand times more terrifying than he does normally. It's like the greatest thing I've ever seen. 
Senator, the term godfather is a term of respect, a term of endearment in the Italian community, and I resent any other implication. Uh, Hollywood rebooting the Valachi papers starring John Jones. Well, that's going to do it for round number one. Sir Nigel Longstock is here. We're going to play a little master tweet theater. I think it's been a couple weeks since we did that, so uh, he's going to come in and take my chair, and we are going to get started with that right now. What's that time again? We welcome back to the show, friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am rippling with readiness. Yeah, you look like you got some sun. You look like you've been out there in it. Oh, yes. I have been badly scorched. But it does not matter. Like a phoenix rising from the ashes, I have come back stronger. Yeah, I know. You've, I think, said that before. Uh, I guess I'm going to go ahead and ask, even though I'm probably going to regret it, is there a theme for Master Tweet Theater this week? There is a theme today, sir, and it is inspiring. It's Clash of Values. (laughs) Dun, dun, dun. All right. Well, you know, against my better judgment, I'm actually kind of optimistic about this one. Uh, I guess go ahead and hit us with the first one whenever you're ready. <clears throat> yes. Let us begin. Clash of values. <clears throat> Tweet the first. Since I'm not able to be jamming to fish live in Chicago right now, I busted out my old Chicago CDs from 94 Tour. Whoa. Hold up. So... Somebody who's disappointed that they can't be at a fish concert, which already, I hate you. Uh, Clash of values. <laughs> but then, wait, are, is, are we to understand that they're getting out their CDs from fishes, like an old tour of fishes, or that they're getting out CDs by Chicago? What? Yeah, I'm, I might need a clarification. Well, no clarification is in the text, sir. That's... I assure you, it ends with a period of ellipses. Three of them, really. All right, Chad, who out there in MMA land do you think is a fish fan? Well, God, if we were talking about Chicago the band, I was going to go Stephen Quadros, you know, because he's a noted classic rock guy. There you go. That makes sense. As for fish, that just, that's a stumper, man. What do you think? Who's the biggest hippie? Uh, fuck it, Clay Guida? Mm, that's, that's interesting. Uh, I'm going to go out of the box. It's probably not this guy. I don't think he's ever appeared on Master Tweet Theater before, but Jonathan Brookins? <laughs> okay. I like what you did there. Uh, Sir Nigel? Both fine guesses, both grounded in broad generalizations, but only one correct. Clay Guida. What? Even I'm kind of surprised at that. I, I think the fix is in here. There's no way you just got that. Clay Guida. Uh, he was in the news, Chad. He just yes, fought. He has the most hair of any active fighter. All over him. Well, I guess, I mean, if, if, if Clay Guida's a, a fish fan, I guess I'm going to have to just chalk it up to how, you know, my wife's sister is a fish fan. And, hey, she, she's good people aside from that one thing, so we'll let it slide. Also, yeah, Chicago, I probably should have put things together that that's Clay Guida's stomping grounds. There it is. Oh, the memories. Clash of values. Stop saying that. Never. <laughs> Tweet the second. I'm the best. Connor's a conqueror? He's no Alexander. I'm Alexander. I'm the best ever. Tell everyone you know the future champ has spoken. That is not a fucking tweet, man. That's like a paragraph. It seems that way, but he got it in under the limit. Really? You're you're telling me that's one tweet? It appeared on Twitter as a single tweet. 
Uh, With line breaks. And it sounds like we're referring to Conor McGregor there, so I'm going to say Dustin Poirier. Yeah, Dustin Poirier is probably your best guess there. Uh, I'm going to go, just to be different, Chad Mendez. Why not? Sure. Sure. In fact, it is Dustin Poirier comparing himself to Alexander the Great. First of all, I believe that that is a Muhammad Ali quote, right? Kind of? Isn't that some, isn't that like a takeoff on a it Muhammad Ali quote? does resemble one, yes. Also, two for two, bitches. Hmm. Perhaps you are Alexander the Conqueror, the best to ever do it in the conquering game. <laughs> <clears throat> Tweet the third. The supermoon looked absolutely chilling behind Brazil's giant Jesus statue. <laughs> Chad, you want to go first here? <laughs> no, I don't. Come on. Uh, I don't know. Uh, how about an oldie, uh, an old favorite of ours, Ariani, Celeste, Benchamol, Lopez, O'Neal. I don't think that she's watching the World Cup, uh, which is when we saw the kind of gratuitous shots of the the moon. Was that the super moon? I don't know. Uh, screw it, John Anik. Both fine guesses, both as usual wrong. It is in fact Mauro Rinaldo. See, I was at least in the wheelhouse. I was right there in commentators. Stop it. The super moon looked chilling. That's actually not bad. Behind Brazil's giant Jesus statue. That's actually pretty decent. <laughs> I've been practicing. See, that's why he's a theatricalist, people. That right there. Tweet the fourth. The two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. Mark Twain. What? Is that a real Mark Twain quote? I think not, sir. <laughs> you didn't research this one? No, no, that would be too much work, but I am calling bullshit on this. Well, you know, Chad, who likes to uh, throw out quotes that they're not sure that there are real quotes? They seem like something passed around on Facebook. You know who likes to do that? Ariane Celeste Benchamal Lopez Concepcion Stamos. You've gotten mad, sir. Uh, yeah, so does the poet Philip Baroni. I'm going to say the poet Philip Baroni here. Okay. Both fine guesses, both likely offenders in the ASAT's wisdom game, and both wrong. It is Rich Franklin. God damn it. Oh, the poor man's Randy Couture. I believe Mark Twain said the two most important days in your life are the day you are born and the day you find out how. Huh? Let's move on. What Sexual do you say? Intercourse what do you say? Is what I'm speaking of difficult to explain to a child. <laughs> They're often horrified, but they come around. What's the next tweet? Mm, tweet the fifth. Fuck! Stuck in gym parking lot with a boner again! So out of control! I got this one, Chad. I got this one. <laughs> you okay? Are you alright over there? I've never seen you laugh like that. It's just pure joy. Uh, that's War Machine. Yeah, that's, there's no other human that that could possibly be. <laughs> it is, it is War Machine, and it's only a matter of time before he makes another one. Uh, how is that a clash of values for War Machine? You know, I feel like we run the whole sweep. We've got literature, and music, and boners, and Jesus, the moon, everything anyone believes in. Admit it, you just saw that War Machine tweet and you knew no matter what the so-called theme was, you were squeezing that one in here. Obviously, I must select one tweet first each week. <laughs> well, I guess that about does it. So, Nigel, what else you got going on this week? Well, it's funny you should ask, sir. I've just wrapped an inspiring story about a man who contrives to walk a tightrope between the towers of the World Trade Center, only to be knocked off by a swarm of bees. 
I see. And what's it called? Wicker Man on Wire. <laughs> Not bad. Well, that was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir. Chad, Anthony Rumble Johnson came into his light heavyweight fight with Roger Nog as a roughly 7-1 to favorite, depending on who you ask. Uh, and it seemed like this was one of these fights on paper where it had the potential to go real bad, real fast, and then somehow it was even worse than that. Just a straight-up goddamn execution of poor Roger Nog in there as Rumble steamrolled him. I mean, I feel like that's about what we expect. I also felt a little dirty after watching it, kind of like the uh, Roy Nelson uh, Roddy Nog situation all over again. Yeah, this one was pretty squashy. Uh, this one seemed like it was nothing more than a showcase fight for Anthony Johnson to bring him on national television and give him an opponent that uh, he could rough up in, in pretty uh, effective fashion. Now, I don't think anybody thought that it was going to go down quite like it did obviously with the uh uh you know knockout in under a minute but at the same time uh this seemed like they were just looking for a capital o opponent for anthony johnson to to come in and beat up um and you know with when you see dana white sending out tweets that say things like i was just telling lorenzo fertita that anthony or that antonio Rogerio Nogueira might have too much experience for Anthony Johnson. I guess I was wrong. It kind of makes you wonder, like, really? Did you really think that? Or, nope. like, are nope. you bullshitting right now? Bullshitting. You know, I, although I will say I can't blame the UFC too much for this one. No, I Be can't either. It seems like the perfect thing to do with a guy like Anthony Johnson. Well, and kind of what else are you going to do there uh, if you if you look around uh, at the ranks? Uh, I mean, he already beat Phil Davis. Uh, Rashad Evans is a teammate and is also hurt. You know, you got Cormier and Gustafson all in that same little title picture swirl up there at the top. Uh, I mean, I think if you'd try to match up, uh, Anthony Johnson and Dan Henderson, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to say that that one's going to be super, uh, competitive either. I mean, there's a, it seems like there's a, a whole lot of things, uh, that where either you, you can't make the match for some reason or it would be a shitty match in different ways. Uh, plus you, you got Roger Nog who keeps, uh, being in fights and pulling out of fights, he, he's a he's a ranked guy. He's he's been a known guy for a while. If he's gonna be around, then he's the kind of guy who probably has to fight some tough com competition. He can't go out there and and you know fight some some nobodies. Like he just you you can't do that when you're at his stage and probably you know making the kind of money that he's making. So you have to go out there and fight a guy like Anthony Johnson uh, or you know best available kind of situation. And this is what happens. I mean. Uh, it did seem like a showcase fight, but also it's not as if Anthony Johnson has been handed an easy road up till this point. No, he certainly hasn't. He seems like the real deal now that he's decided which weight class to be in. And in fact, there isn't a lot of stuff to dislike, I don't think, about what Anthony Johnson is doing uh, from the uh, just being terrifying during the fight to the being super likable and seeming like a really nice guy during all of the, uh, interviews, uh, both pre and post fight to the wearing a super classy ass walk-in shirt that just says rumble. That is a nice. And, people and, should take, take a note of that kind of stuff. That's the kind of thing people might actually wear. 
Indeed. Uh, and then, you know, coming to the post-fight press conference in a sweet vest and a bow tie, there's just not a lot of stuff where I can look at Anthony Johnson and, and point out stuff that I dislike. Now, the thing that I think is going to be interesting with him moving forward, and this is what I said at the beginning of the show, that it seemed like somebody was going to get totally screwed here in the next few months, and maybe it's just that I have this sinking feeling that this is normally how it works out in the UFC for one reason or another. It seems hard to me to find Anthony Johnson a next opponent that isn't going to feel like a step backward from what he's already done, and clearly the thing that he has already done that was the most impressive was beat Phil Davis, and then he came in and not knocked out Roddy, Roger Nog just as kind of a, a icing on the cake. But like, honestly, he seems like a potential number one contender to me right now. And uh, if we're going to have to wait until September to see John Jones and Daniel Cormier fight, and we still don't know, as far as I know, a return date on Alexander Gustafson, it's going to be interesting to see how the UFC plays this with a guy like Anthony Johnson, who seems like he's a potential number one contender, and a guy like Alexander Gustafson waiting in the wings for a shot that he's already been promised. And then you got to contend with whatever the hell happens in John Jones, Daniel Cormier, because, you know, as we've learned over and over again in this sport, stuff often happens where you don't get a conclusive ending. You got to kind of do it again. So, uh, I don't know, man. It's going to be interesting watching the light heavyweight division develop over the next few months because it seems like somebody's going to get left out in the cold. It does seem that way. Although, you know what you could do uh, if you were so inclined? Uh, Anthony Johnson just had his fight. We already mentioned uh, the the dream fight finally coming together between Ryan Bader and Ovin St. Preux, uh, the one we've been waiting for since never. So uh, maybe you take the winner of that, throw him in there against Rumble. Uh, just for shits and gigs while we kill some time to see uh, what's happening with the light heavyweight title and what's happening with Alexander Gustafson's knee. Boom. Yeah, and I, that seems like the the most obvious way to go. It also seems like that is kind of a bummer fight for Anthony Johnson, a guy who that you'd think might deserve better than, than the winner of that fight. It seems to me like, you know, depending it's on... It's a main that, event fight, Chad. Main event, Bangor, Maine. Yeah, no, I know. I know exactly what it is. I don't, you, you don't seem pumped up. It's weird. It's the main event. <laughs> uh, it seems to me like if the timeline worked out, the fight to make would be Anthony Johnson against Alexander Gustafson. But then you also obviously kind of screw Alexander Gustafson, who's already been promised a title shot and, and then would have to fight a guy who seems super tough in Anthony Johnson. Yeah. Well, that, that, and you know, though, I would hope that at this point, UFC fighters all realize what it means to be promised a title shot. Come on. Come on, man. Until you're actually in there, you know that that shit can be yanked away from you at any moment. So I, I don't know if anybody is at this point so uh, idealistic that they're holding on to that promise as if, but wait, you said, no, this can't be. This can't be. You said I would, I was next. I was next. Everybody, everybody saw it. I was next. I had the next, the, you know, it, it says now serving 22 and I'm 22. Like, no, come on. We all know. We all know how that works. You went real Jerry Seinfeld there towards the end of that rant. It's just, I, I just felt it. I felt it and I went with it. I, I don't know. apologize for anything. I liked it. I thought it, I thought it worked. I thought that it was. What's the deal uh, with airline food? Could it kill him to make a good meal on a plane? Uh, Antonio Rogerio Nogueira, we talked about him a little bit at the top of the show. Do we need to address his situation more? Uh, he, you know, he had not fought, uh, in over a year, although he did come in off the win over Rashad Evans and previous to that, uh, a win over Tito Ortiz for, for everything that that's worth. Uh, you, you know, um, the Nogueira brothers both are guys who, uh, for a really long time seemed older than they actually were. 
And now they're just a little kind of like flat out old. They're 38 years old at this point. Uh, or Rogerio Nogueira is 30, 38 years old. Uh, is he, is he done or, or like, as you said at the beginning of the show, is it the kind of situation where maybe he still justifies it to himself saying he got caught or he had a super bad matchup and he wants to, you know, have, come back and have another fight or two? This is one of those where right after it was over, I was thinking he should quit after this and he almost certainly won't. You know how the Noguera, you know how they are, man. They're, they're not going to go out easily. It's going to take some doing to convince those guys, uh, that they should quit fighting. Uh, and especially when you get knocked out like that, ah, oh, hey, you know, you got caught 44 seconds. It happens. Guy comes forward, throws some bombs. You, you get caught. Uh, I, I could see way more ways that he talks himself into thinking that he's still got a few left in him than ways that he convinces himself that that was it and he should hang it up. Yeah, you're probably right. Also, how are they going to be twin brothers in different weight classes? One's right-handed, one's left-handed. Isn't that weird? Yeah, totally weird. I guess that would mean that they are also the same age, so I didn't need to differentiate between Rogerio Noguera being 38 years old. Maybe there, there's some kind of weird mirror image thing going on. Like maybe to, like they if they get together and, and form up into one person, they'll be unstoppable. Do you remember? I can't remember which book this was, but there was a, some kind of old school MMA book that had a, a uh, an anecdote in it about the Noguera brothers stealing a skeleton. Do you remember this when they were kids? And it ended up on a roof somehow? No. I have, can't remember which book that was. Are you sure you're not thinking about Chael Sonnen's story about them feeding a carrot to a <laughs> no, bus? No. Because I, I think that might have been uh, embellished. Yeah, I think that one was probably stretched the truth a little bit there. But uh, I'll see if I can find it. Maybe we'll talk about it on a, uh, on a on a future show. Anyway, Ben, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number three. Uh, ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, uh, I believe we already talked about the poet Philip Baroni and his kind of sad outing against Carl Parisian. But, did. Chad... Did you happen to notice the Poet Philip Baroni's sponsor banner for his Bellator fight? As a former newspaperman, how could I not? Are you fucking kidding me? That was awesome. For those of you who missed it, I think you can find a picture of it uh, on Phil Baroni's Instagram page somewhere. But basically, uh, it is a mock-up uh, made to look like the front page of the New York Times. Only instead it says, obviously, the New York Badass. But then the sponsor logos are featured as if they are stories placed uh, in different parts. I think it even has, you know, the date, just like it does in the New York Times. I mean, maybe some, like, kind of copyright infringement stuff there on the New York Times' design uh, and, and logo and stuff like that. But still, are you fucking kidding me? That's what sponsor banners should be about, man. Not some stuff where you just got a picture of the dude that that dude himself is going to stand in front of. And then you got a bunch of stupid, basically NASCAR logos plastered all over the goddamn place. And you got dude wipes in there somewhere. No, 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 my friend. This, this took some art, some imagination, some creativity. Are you fucking kidding me? Phil Baroni just put all your sponsor games on notice, son. Yeah, time to step your sponsor banner game up, I guess. It's Phil Baroni doing it like that. Fucking kidding me. Uh, Dude Wife's 0-2 in the Octagon now, right? Yeah, no, I can't remember who it was, but on Twitter was suggesting that we try and get uh, the Dude Wife's curse uh, going. Now that, you know, Robbie Lawler uh, kind of helped put to bed the Eminem curse, uh, I believe, this past week. So uh, we need a new one. And it seems like Dude Wife's is as, as good a curse as any, right? Yeah, and, you know, way more publicity than those guys probably ever dreamed of getting through this fighter sponsorship thing. Man, this week, my Are You Fucking go Kidding Me goes out to people who keep calling out Diego Sanchez. This week, it was Dan Hardy, a smart dude who I like a lot. 
Uh, he told your guy, Stephen Morocco, that he wouldn't mind coming out of retirement to put Diego Sanchez into retirement, supposedly because he didn't agree with the Ross Pearson decision. And before that, it was somebody on the UFC Dublin card. It might have been Norman Park. Does that called out Diego Sanchez after his his big win. It's a person. On UFC Dublin. Uh, and before that, it was Conor McGregor himself getting into it with Diego Sanchez on Twitter. Are you fucking kidding me, people? Do you not think we see what you're doing here? <laughs> Leave poor Diego Sanchez alone, man. This shit is unseemly. Fucking kidding me? Well, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, all along we had Robbie Lawler and Matt Brown circled on our calendars as a potential fight of the year contender. I'm not sure it quite lived up to those lofty expectations, uh, but it was a pretty fun fight. It started out with fireworks in the first round, slowed down a little bit in those middle rounds there, but then came back again with fire in the fifth round uh, as Matt Brown did everything he could to try to uh, snatch victory from the jaws of defeat, even though he uh, looked like he ended up hurting his hand there in the fifth round. Uh, but for the most part in this fight, the story was pretty much exactly what we thought it was going to be. Robbie Lawler's uh, slightly more technical, slightly sharper counter punches, uh, making Matt Brown pay uh, when, when, when he came in with a bit more, uh, you know, lunging and wild style. Uh, Matt Brown certainly had his moments, but at the end of the day, Robbie Lawler salts away the unanimous decision victory, and now we think that he is staring down the barrel of a of another meeting with Johnny Hendricks whenever Johnny Hendricks can can get healthy from his bicep surgery. Uh, Robbie Lawler's third act of his career, his new UFC life at welterweight, um, going much better, I guess, than we ever could have dreamed. Yeah, although I do think uh, we got to give some love there to Matt Brown. I didn't think that it was going to be this competitive. I thought, you know, Matt Brown, tough guy, you know, good fighter, but I thought that Robbie Lawler was just going to kind of outclass him and that the the power uh, and and uh, that that just trickiness in the style of Robbie Lawler was going to be too much for him and that he'd probably get knocked out in the first or second round. Uh, and it seemed like he was in trouble there early in the first. And then, you know, you look midway through the second round and holy shit, Matt Brown's right back in it. You know, the, I think we have to give him credit for being uh, better than we thought he was. Uh, but also, I mean, Robbie Lawler, it's, it really says something about the guy where you can say, okay, well, this one was an awesome fight. Um, but one of the reasons you know it's not fight of the year is because Robbie Lawler already had a better fight earlier this year. Yeah, and he's certainly probably the front runner for fighter of the year, you'd think. He's 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 got 3 wins this year and I think this was his was this his fifth fight? He's got in, two wins this year. He's got two wins this year, but was this his fourth or fifth fight in the last uh, dating back to last July? I think this was like yeah, fifth he, one uh, fifth since fight, last July, like uh, in, third one this year. Uh, the the Johnny Hendricks. Oh one, right, yeah, uh, no, he did not win that one. So no, two two wins and three fights this year, and uh, five fights right uh, in underneath. I think a day underneath a year since. Uh, since uh, I believe that Rory McDonald fight. Uh, yeah, and I think it's pretty remarkable at this point about just how Robbie Lawler has been able to kind of position himself uh, as one of the poster boys now in this sport. Uh, 
not doesn't hurt that he he nabbed that Adidas sponsorship as as Adidas tries to kind of forge into the MMA sphere. But Robbie Lawler, a guy who fights exactly like the UFC, I think would like all of its fighters to fight. Uh, but a guy who uh, left the promotion for many years after back to back losses in 2004 uh, was the lead XC middleweight champ and fought for the Strikeforce middleweight title. But always it was a guy who was kind of plagued by inconsistency. He would win a few fights and then he would lose one. He would win a few fights and then he would lose one. And, and you know, lost a, a bunch of fights that it seemed like he should probably win. And uh, kind of seemed like this one was going to go that way for a few seconds in the first round there, uh, where uh, Matt Brown, who had already been stung a little bit by Robbie Lawler, came back and, and put him on Dream Street a little bit. And, and I think that was the point where you started to think, uh-oh, we got a lot of Robbie Lawler fight on our hands here. Uh, but uh, but then you, you see the smile on Robbie Lawler's face, and you're like, oh, wait, this is kind of how he wants it. Do you think that this is a situation where cutting the weight going down to 170 has helped Robbie Lawler overcome that consistency uh, that he that kind of hamstrung him in the past? Or is this the same dude just hasn't really, uh, you know, fallen victim to that as so much as he used to in the past? I think that uh, the the consistency issue is probably due more to just maturity and experience. I think you forget how young Robbie Lawler is when he broke into the UFC. I mean, he was, what, like 20 years old uh, when he first signed with the UFC and 22 the first time he bounced out of the UFC. Uh, so I think that uh, some of that was just learning uh, how to train, how to fight, uh, that kind of stuff. Also, it doesn't help when, you know, you're... You're fighting guys who are a little bit bigger than you absolutely need to, to be dealing with there. Um, but I think that he's, you know, we've heard a lot about him just kind of refining his, his training techniques. Uh, and now it used to be that, okay, Robbie Lawler was a hell of a slugger on the feet. You didn't really want to mess with that. But you could take him down and you could kind of wear him out there a little bit. And you could, you could exploit some holes in his game. And those holes just don't really seem to be there that much anymore. Uh, so I think it's a it's a combination of him getting older and wiser and also getting better as uh, his, his game gets rounded out a little more. I mean, when you look at Robbie Lawler now, there's not like one area where you can say, that's the place I'm going to go and exploit. That's where I'm going to beat him. I mean, you got to take your chances with him. And like Mark Lehman was saying when I was talking to him for a story that's uh, in today's USA Today, shameless plug, uh, He's a guy where even when he's hurt, like he was in that Melvin Manhoff fight, he is always dangerous. He can always just reach out there and knock you cold. So it, it, it makes it so that there's no, there's no time where you can really feel safe in there against Robbie Lawler. And Matt Brown exits this fight with his seven-fight win streak snapped. Uh, you say you were impressed with his performance. Uh, I thought it was a good good performance, but it wasn't necessarily unexpected as far as I was concerned. Uh, I think I thought there was going to be a stoppage in this fight. I think everybody thought that so the fact that it went the distance was a surprise but in terms of the action between you know from bell to bell i thought it kind of went like i thought it would matt brown only ended up winning one round on on two scorecards and won two rounds on the other scorecards so while he was able to make it competitive uh this wasn't really his fight uh you, you know for for long stretches of of the 25 minutes um did you feel as I did, and I, you know, I wrote a little something on Bleacher Report about this today, shameless plug, uh, but that the, uh, the MMA's love affair with Matt Brown started to drag a little bit this week before the fight. Obviously, he made that, uh, uh, you know, uh, 
on probably uncalled for, but at the same time, just kind of kind of a careless uh, vocal gaffe when he said that he would never be a favorite in the UFC until they found him some quote unquote retard to fight. Uh, and then he came in missed weight uh, by a pound and a half. And, and uh, depending on who you ask, there was either miscommunication after that or not uh, re- regarding about whether or not he was going to be able to get back on the scale. Uh, but this was a, a week where I thought, you know, I started to feel like, this love affair that that the MMA uh, industry has had with Matt Brown kind of started to hit bottom a little bit this week, and I think that that's a kind of thing where, like, you know, if you're going to be the guy who kind of who talks about how you want to see the female fighters fight topless and and make jokes about how you you'll be a favorite then when you get to fight a developmentally delayed person, which I think we can all agree Matt Brown would probably win that one. Probably, yeah. Uh, if you're going to be that guy, man, you got to keep winning. Because <laughs> yeah. the UFC is only going to see you, it's only going to stick up for you as long as you are a viable contender in that division. So while I think Matt Brown comes out of this fight, you know, with his star intact, and he's certainly going to get more big fights and the chance to fight other contenders in the welterweight division, uh, he better keep winning them. Because if you pile up a couple losses in a row, suddenly those warts start to matter a little bit more. Yeah, and you're right that there are a couple of those things where, as we mentioned uh, in the Breakfast of Champions email, which, by the way, you can sign up for for free on on our website, uh, get a little Friday morning love in your inbox. Uh, it does seem like he is kind of uh, MMA's uh, beloved, but also kind of occasionally embarrassing uh, uh, cousin at times where, yeah, you know, you, you like him, you, you, you still want to have him around, want to see him fight, but every once in a while he's going to say some stuff that kind of makes you cringe. This one, though, didn't seem as bad to me because... Uh, well, yeah, you shouldn't say that. It, like you said, it was more careless than yeah. malicious. Certainly, yeah, there was no malice, I don't think. It was, certainly wasn't born out of hate. It was just, like, thoughtlessness that yeah. I probably shouldn't say that in public. Well, and you could see maybe, like, that Matt Brown just uh, running in the social circles where he hasn't really gotten he hasn't gotten that memo yet that you're not supposed to just throw the word retard around uh, anymore, that, that we all decided, like, hey, maybe that wasn't cool after all. You could see how maybe he would be surprised when you're like, oh, wait, that's... So I can't see that one either? Oh, man. Oh, come on. Uh, like, I, you know, so that one, I, I don't really hold against him too much. It is just kind of like, okay, that's a little embarrassing for, for all of us. Uh, and one of those things where it makes you feel like, as an MMA fan, you shouldn't have to uh, be ashamed that often. But then again, right. hey, you look at NFL players beating up their wives and girlfriends and getting basically no punishment for it, and you realize... It could be a lot worse. Yeah, it, it's the kind of thing that makes us look like the people that the haters and critics say that we are. That's the thing that I think is the most wince-worthy about it. Uh, I guess you could do a lot worse than a Robbie Lawler-Johnny uh, Hendricks rematch coming up here. And frankly, you could do a lot worse than uh, Robbie Lawler-Johnny Hendricks trilogy if things if Robbie Lawler manages to come in there and just do a little bit more work than he did the first time against Johnny Hendricks and, and maybe he key walks out with that belt instead of uh, instead of the wrestler from Oklahoma. Yeah, that, I mean, this one I think is going to be a really interesting rematch because on one hand, uh, you got Johnny Hendricks's camp saying, well, you know, Johnny was really injured going into that one, and so we kind of just had to rely on him gritting one out and finding a way to win, and he didn't really follow the game plan, but just kind of went in there and, uh, and just figured it out on the fly. Uh, and Robbie Lawler saying, like, you know, I figured out what I did wrong, and I just need to do more and, and more volume, more everything, uh, and uh, then I won't have to go home with those same regrets. So it seems like each guy thinks he's got it figured out. Each guy thinks he has the blueprint. Uh, but then you've also you know, got to account not only for your adjustments, but the other guy's adjustments, and then your adjustments to what you think his adjustments will be. Uh, plus, you know, there's good reason to think that 
they might go five rounds, so that it might be some even more adjustments on top of those adjustments to adjustments going on mid-fight. Interesting ins and outs here. A lot of people adjusting themselves in the Ben Folk's uh, pre-fight analysis here. Basically, it's just constant self-adjustment. If you're not adjusting yourself, Chad, you're, you're losing. You're, you're sinking down lower. Sinking down all the way to the bottom. Yeah, if you can't be an athlete, be an athletic supporter. That's what I always say. You do always say that. There's never a time when you're not saying that. Let's do just saying stuff, and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, this week, my just saying stuff goes out to all those people back in April when a bunch of these dumb idiots tried to talk shit about how John Jones was ducking Alexander Gustafson because he wanted to fight Daniel Cormier instead. Yeah, I guess this week I'm just saying still fuck you guys. Uh, That shit was dumb when you said it at the time. It's dumb now that the fight is off. And frankly, if you don't have a little reminder card printed out and taped to your bathroom mirror about how you should try to be less dumb in the future, go ahead and make one right now before you forget and you start acting dumb again. I'm just saying. Just saying. So do I really have to get that reminder card? I mean, can you make those available maybe? Like the, yeah, we should sell those on the website. We'll just then, have little printout sheets. Yeah, and you can have a little like dotted line for people to cut around. Yeah, we'll put those on there with the Vitor Belfort Daily Inspirational Desk Calendar. Yeah, that, I'm really looking forward to that one. Uh, Chad, this week, my Just Sand stuff. Uh, I know you noticed that uh, you know Israeli fighter Nawad Lahat. Uh, I'm not totally sure I'm pronouncing his name correctly there. Uh, he fought on the prelims here of this one, uh, had a good decision win over Steven Seiler and the curtain jerker at UFC on Fox 12, and as had been publicized uh, all week leading up to this, had planned to you know do this fight and then go back home to Israel, rejoin the Israeli army uh, for, as you might have heard if you follow the news, uh, this ongoing conflict uh, in the Gaza Strip. Huh, something going on over there? Yeah, you know, I'll send you some links. Okay. I'll, I'll send you some links that will tell you about it. Um, and it seems like everybody's doing, you know, we saw several stories leading up to this about like, hey, you know, this guy, uh, this, this kind of feel-good story of this guy putting duty to, to country ahead of his own uh, career and his own desires, uh, going to go back there and, and, and pitch in, uh, do his part. Uh, Joe Rogan brought it up in the Octagon. Uh, and yet, I'm just saying, it seems like we might be oversimplifying that issue a little bit. Just a little bit? Uh, I'm not saying that we want to get into the, the whole potentially toxic uh, situation there with really strong feelings on both sides. I know that maybe you know a post-fight interview in the cage is not the time to get into complicated geopolitical matters. Uh, and I can understand people wanting to seize on that narrative because it seems like a good one. Uh, at the same time, I mean, you see photos in the New York Times of dead Palestinian kids, and you got to realize that, you know, this isn't uh, just the guy going back to, to help out at the family hardware store. This is kind of a complex situation, a difficult one on both sides uh, with, you know, tragedy on both sides. Just saying maybe we don't want to just oversimplify that one for the sake of the narrative. Just, just saying. saying. So you're saying maybe we're still not doing nuance exactly perfectly right? Maybe not. Maybe well, not. It's a tough one. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We won't be back next week, but we will be back in two weeks to continue talking about all the awesome stuff that just continues to go down in the world of mixed martial arts fighting. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. South Carolina, huh? Oh, yeah. What the fuck time. is in South Carolina? I don't know. I've never been there before. You going to bring me back a souvenir? 
Yeah, so bring back a Charleston snow globe or whatever.